Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one in our series discussing healthcare disparities. As all of you are aware, healthcare disparities are generally based on biases, many implicit, but it's been surprising to me to learn how deeply and subtly embedded some of the disparate practices are. Among the most entrenched are disparities around pregnancy and childbirth, which themselves lead to worse care and increased morbidity and mortality to some of our most vulnerable patients, pregnant women and newborns. Today, we have a guest host, Brian Brown. Brian is a senior clinical practice manager and frequently contributes thoughtful, inspirational information on healthcare diversity topics. His guest expert is Dr. Khadija Hay, whom you've met in previous programs. Khadija is Team Health's Chief Clinical Officer of OB Hospitalist Services. She's researched and written a profound treatise on the history of healthcare disparities in this country. Thank you both. Brian, it's all yours. Thank you very much, Dr. Strauss. Um, pretty excited to talk about what we have on the menu today. And, and we have a really, really awesome specialist that is very knowledgeable, very well known throughout the, the team health ranks that um, I'm looking forward to kind of picking her brain and probing uh, on some of these issues uh, around Black maternal health and, and trying to understand if it's a crisis or not. So the statistics have shown that Black women in the United States are roughly around three to five more times likely to die, to die from pregnancy or postpartum issues than white women. And, and as we talk about Black, you know, let's let's kind of take a step back. We'll talk about Black American, uh, Black Indigenous people of color or BIPOC. But, you know, in general, people of color are going through this phenomenon where literally having a child, it, it could be a very scary thing. And so I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Khadija Hay, um, who's Team Health's National Medical Director for uh, Obstetrics. And so Dr. Hay, thank you so much for, for carving time out of your busy schedule today. And um, in delving a little bit deeper, I know you, you've you been quite outspoken and you've published several, several articles on this. And so tell us a little bit more about kind of why we're just now talking about this. I mean, has this been an issue before and is this just coming to the forefront? Um, shed a little light on that for us, if you would. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me today. Um, as you know, this topic is near and dear to me, and I think it's really important to shed light on this issue and addressing um, the concerns around Black maternal health, but also what we can do to improve things moving forward. And you asked, you know, was this an issue or was this um, a topic that people were aware of before now? And I think, you know, to be very honest, it's something that most OBGYNs have been aware of for um, quite some time well before some of these more publicized um, outcomes, especially around Serena Williams and some other celebrities and their outcomes with respect to pregnancy. Um, I think we've all been aware of the this is an issue, but what these more recent um, scenarios have really highlighted 
is the fact that there is a true potential for bias in our healthcare system and that those biases can result in health disparities. So it is something that has been um, something that we probably most of us in our field have been very well aware of. But now I think there's more of an impetus in understanding and bringing light to how to address it and to improve outcomes for our pregnant moms. So as you talk about biases, you know, we're going to talk about bias as being something that can be both intentional and unintentional. As you became trained to be a clinician, is this something that you think is rooted all the way back into, say, med school programs, or do is this a learned behavior, or is it? Do you feel that it exists well before the individual goes on their track to pre-med? I think these biases are really formed throughout our childhood and our development, um, and really are shaped by the society that we are raised in and our exposure to. Um, television to social current events, I think all of those things, and really also our parents, right, and how we're raised. I think all of those varying contributing factors shape our biases, right? And so in the United States in particular, I think anyone that is either born or raised here or has lived here for some time um, may be subject to looking to realizing and being exposed to some of the biases that do exist. And so I do think many of our biases are probably shaped from childhood. However, as we matriculate through our medical careers, some of those biases may come out in varying ways. Sometimes some of the things that we learn and are exposed to through our training may change some of our biases, but also I think some of the things that we learn and are exposed to may um, really feed into some of those biases, right? Mm -hmm. We may be taught certain things in medical school or in residency to say, well, certain um, people in a certain demographic don't feel pain or don't perceive pain in the same way as others, right? That's a common misconception. And so it may feed into some of the underlying biases that we have. So I think part of the way in which we should look at addressing it is really talking a little bit more about healthcare biases and starting from um, our medical school training. You know, I'll be very honest, when I trained in medical school, and I don't think it was that much long ago, um, really the idea of healthcare um, biases in healthcare or health disparities was not a topic um, that we were trained upon when I went to medical school or residency. Um, so I think there are um, some opportunities there to start to introduce this topic earlier on. And I think more and more medical schools um, in the last, probably in the last four to five years are doing a better job of introducing this topic and helping to address it. The first way we can address it is just to be aware that it even exists, right? And I think if, if we don't at least initially acknowledge that biases exist, then we're not we're less apt to address them and combat them when we face them in our careers. I don't think you'll ever be able to erase biases, right? They're so hardwired, but I think the goal is to ultimately have people more aware that they exist, more conscious of it, so that when they are faced with it, they are able to develop ways in which to address it and combat it in real time, right? And so that way it impacts and influences how they interact with their patients. If the science is the science and you treat a patient the way you should treat a patient, why and how should these societal or socialized behaviors or patterns or tapes be impacting what a process should look like? When you look at generally how and when, you know, as you talk, you know, certain patients may be able to perceive pain on different thresholds. Well, is that a perception? And because of that, which is not trained, this is how I'm going to treat that patient. So really weird, but doesn't that, 
I don't believe that that would be an accurate way to, to treat an individual. Do you? It's not an accurate way to treat an individual, absolutely. But I think our biases do shape and influence how we perceive the concerns that patients bring to our attention, right? If wow. you're coming to the table with a certain bias, then a patient, two different patients can say the exact same thing and present the exact same way. But how we receive that information and how we perceive those concerns may vary and may be influenced by our biases. And I think that's really where the differences are. I don't think it's a difference in actual genetic perception, right? Using the example that you just mentioned around pain. But I do think our biases do shape how we interpret what patients are sharing with us. And then, of course, that influences our plans of care, our management, and ultimately um, the outcome for that patient, right? And managing whichever issue they presented with. Interesting. So on your area of emphasis, Black maternal health, you know, the CDC had reported back, you know, roughly in 1990, that were 8.2 deaths per 100,000 live births. And then in 2018, now it's CDC is reporting 17.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. And obviously, as we become a more sophisticated society and we continue to leverage technology as much as we can, why would we be going back, have a negative trend like this where the outcomes aren't as favorable as we would like for them to be? Well, I think, you know, to be honest now, I think there is an in heightened awareness with respect to maternal mortality in general. And then, of course, a subset of that being Black maternal mortality. Um, recently, there was a CDC article that was published um, looking at the maternal mortality rates in the United States across a number of states. And what they did note was that at least 80%, 80% of the maternal mortality, maternal morbidity that we see in the United States was preventable. So I think that alone, wow. in general, if you're looking at just all pregnant women and recently pregnant women, 80% of those deaths were preventable. So let's start there. And then we look at the subset based on racial demographics, and we do see that Black women tend to be um, more adversely impacted by cardiovascular events, right? And so when we look at why and how these women are impacted, Black women across the board consistently are noted to be more greatly impacted by the, the trend in maternal mortality compared to their white counterparts, right? As you mentioned, you opened with that statistic, right? Black women are three times higher to experience maternal mortality compared to their white counterparts. So I think right now what we're seeing is, I don't know that it's necessarily an increase, and there might be some underlying increases with respect to access to care and their number of contributing factors, but I think part of the reason we're discussing this more is a heightened awareness because across the board, we're recognizing that this is an area that we really need to focus on in improving outcomes for our pregnant women, but in, but in particular, our pregnant Black women. And when you look across the board at some of the ways in which Black women are impacted, you'll see they are at um, higher risk of um, C-section deliveries, right? And all the downstream, potential downstream um, impact that may have on maternal morbidity and mortality risk. Um, infant mortality, Black infants are at higher risk of death compared to their white counterparts. So there's so many um, items there that we really have to take stock of and understand the why behind it. And I think it's such a complex issue that people are trying to wrap their arms around now that they're really realizing that 
so multifactorial that we really need to place more of an emphasis on addressing the why and the how to make sure that we are able to really truly impact those outcomes downstream. I, I know you talked about certain celebrities that have been able to utilize their platform to talk about this, Beyonce Knowles and, and obviously Serena Williams. In in looking at, at this and in, in what they're able to, to advocate relative to Black maternal health, it's interesting that there's a Black Maternal Health Week on, uh, I believe it's April 11th through 17th, is that correct? Why is it not just mm -hmm. Maternal Health Week? So absolutely, we need to continue to shine a light on this, and for a number of reasons. But, you know, you, you mentioned some of these high-profile cases, and, and what I think those cases have done is highlight the potential for institutional racism and implicit biases that do exist in our healthcare system, right? Because the common misconception historically has been, well, maybe um, it's because Black people don't care about their health as much, or um, they're not as compliant, or maybe there's something inherently um, from a genetic perspective that they're predisposed to some of these bad outcomes. And what we saw here, that it highlighted the fact that when you, even when you adjust for all of those things, for, for educational backgrounds, for socioeconomic status, Black women in particular are adversely impacted by a number of these outcomes, right? And disproportionately affected by some of these outcomes compared to their white counterparts. And that's why we really just continue to shine the light and focus on black maternal health in particular. As a, as a race, as a subset of pregnant women, black women tend to be consistently um, and disproportionately affected by some of these outcomes. So Dr. Hay, I, I just wanna thank you first and foremost for choosing the the uh, profession that you've chosen. Uh, obviously, there's a severe underrepresentation of Black OBGYNs in the United States. What can we do to enlist, recruit, or, or try to understand how to get more individuals, uh, Black females even, OBGYNs, to care for more Black women? Right. That's a great question. I think there's so many aspects to how best to address this issue, and certainly one of them being um, representation, right, and having more Black healthcare professionals um, to care for our Black patients and our Black moms. So one of the ways I think in which we can help to address that is, you know, as Black healthcare professionals reaching out into our communities, right, and, and getting our young people <clears throat> really interested in health careers as a, as a career option, right, and understanding and allowing them to see that we exist and that they too can choose this as a career path. But really when we look at the impact and how to address this long-term, we have to also look at all of the contributing factors. And there's so many of Certainly. them, right? There's yes. institutional and structural racism. There's variation in healthcare quality from location to location. Social determinants of health and of course, provider biases. And I do think representation will help with that. If there are more of us um, caring for these patients and helping to advocate on their behalf, it does help to shape um, and address um, the attitudes of our colleagues, right? Coming to them as a clinician with the data, with the research to say, hey, this is important, and we together collectively need to work on how to address it. And one of the ways we can collectively work on addressing it is how do we standardize our care, yeah. right? And yeah. so, for example, when we see a patient, making sure that every patient gets the same care um, in the same way, right? And meeting a patient with what they need at the right time. And so 
finding a way to continue to train our clinicians starting in the medical school realm through residency and even onward, right? And on, onward after that and through our um, through our, our careers, we have to continue to focus on educating ourselves and educating one another on how to standardize our care and to help at least move the needle on um, the biases and how they can influence the way we practice. So I think that's one area to focus on. You know, social determinants of health is a hot topic, right? And that's mm-hmm. coming up a lot these days and looking at what are these social determinants of health? Well, you know, spending more time as clinicians, really understanding our patients as whole people, right? They're not just, oh, that's just diabetes walking by or that's just hypertension walking by, but that is Mrs. Smith and addressing that person, that patient as a whole person. So what is their background like? What are their resources? Do they have transportation? Uh, Making sure that they understand the plan of care and really uh, taking the time to explain the why and the how, um, why we're treating certain things and, and how best to address it. Really understanding what goes into that person and how they arrive um, in front of you before before you that day, right? What went into impacting their health and how to best make sure that they have the resources that they need because what person A may need, right? What Ms. Smith might need is going to be very different than what Ms. Turner might need, even if they both present to you with a history of chronic hypertension, right? Agreed. So Agreed. really understanding the person as a whole is really very important. And then also looking at variations in healthcare quality. You know, that is something I think it's going to be a much heavier list, but, you know, there's been some data to show that Black moms that are cared for, and even really all moms, but Black moms that are cared for in a predominantly Black caring or serving hospital have an increased risk in maternal morbidity or severe maternal morbidity than compared to Black moms that are cared for in hospitals that have a lower percentage of Black patients. Why is that? Right. Why is it that hospitals that are predominantly black in terms of the number of pregnant women they care for have poor outcomes compared to yeah. the hospitals that do not have as many black patients? I think we have to go to the root of that understanding. Why are there variations in care from institution to institution? And so there's a number of factors. And that's, I think, a, a topic for another day in terms of that. <laughs> but I think it's something we do need to keep in mind and understanding that that all of those things contribute to this issue of Black maternal health and Black maternal mortality. And we do need to just systematically take an approach to addressing each of these things um, to ensure better outcomes for our patients. First and foremost, I think most clinicians went into um, the business of medicine, right, and chose the career of medicine inherently because we wanted to help people. And I think the vast majority of clinicians want to do the right thing and want to take good care of their patients. So that's first and foremost. And starting from that point, appealing to our clinicians across the board and appealing to our healthcare professionals across the board to say, look, this is a problem. And I think most of us as clinicians respond and react to data. Mm-hmm. One way to incentivize our clinicians to see and understand the why and incentivize them to maybe adjust how they approach their management and care of patients is to share that data, right? What is our own individual data? How do we compare, but also as an organization? What are, what are our statistics, right? And looking at it from a national benchmarking perspective. So I think if we look at the statistics and the data just nationally in the United States, how do we fare when it comes to outcomes for our Black mothers? think the, the data is, is, is astonishing. 
But I think we take for granted the fact that most providers are aware of the specifics of the data. So first and foremost, share the information, because I think that helps to explain the why behind um, the importance of this topic. And then appealing to the fact that we all came into this profession to do the right thing and take good care of patients and say, how can we move the needle, right? And how can we standardize care? Look, no one likes the idea and of cookbook medicine, right? That's sort of the pushback you get a lot from clinicians, but it's not cookbook medicine if we try to address best practices. And how do we implement best practices in a way that it can help to standardize our care so that we lessen the impact of our biases and improve the outcomes for our patients? I think those are some ways in which we can start to engage in those conversations to help move the needle and incentivize our clinicians. They want to do the right thing. As we talk about data, Dr. Hay, the data is scary. Do you find that individuals become somewhat paralyzed to be go to to reflect and go, oh my gosh, what can we do about that? Absolutely. I think it can be very daunting and you're right. The data is 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 scary and and we should be impressed by it, right? Impressed by um, really the nature of that disparities that do exist. So I do think there might be some that might be paralyzed by it initially. Um, and I do think you'll have some early adopters that um, picks up that mantle and say, you know what, we got to find a way to address it and kind of bring everybody else on board. And I think that's where as clinical leaders, we do have to set that tone, that example of getting everybody on board and saying, look, I know it looks like an uphill climb. I know it looks daunting, but if we take one step at a time, we will get to the point of finding solutions and addressing this issue. So I think the key is not to think that we're going to solve the, the problem overnight or even address every issue overnight. I think it's prioritizing and taking one step at a time to look at the issues and say, okay, what can we influence? And what are some of the, the, the easier items that we can influence sooner rather than later, and then um, looking at downstream, how do we change the structure um, of our institutions to make sure that once, when, once we put those changes in place, that we're able to maintain them long-term. So I do think there's a way to address it, and as clinical leaders, I think just shaping the dialogue and making sure that people understand just one day, one step at a time, and helping to prioritize where the focus needs to be um, is part of the first step. Mm-hmm. As we look at the standardization of care, at what point in, in ongoing training and education, and I kind of feel that there's a role there, do you feel the importance of cultural sensitivity needs to be incorporated in, in some of those lessons as well? I do think there's a role for that um, because that's part of how we address individual bias, right? We all have them. And um, once we understand and recognize them, um, that's how we can implement change. But I think part of the training around cultural sensitivity or culturally appropriate care helps to address some of the biases that each of us has. So I think there is a role for that um, from an institutional standpoint, standpoint and organizational standpoint, incorporating that um, in required training for all of their employees. Awesome. In looking at how we're able to allow individuals to feel comfortable with who they are and incorporate them into their plans of care. How important is that? That is extremely important because that's how we gain patients' trust and buy-in to 
collaborate with us as clinicians in their care, right? Um, we can hand down all of the directives that we want all day long, but unless the patient trusts our judgment and feels like they are able to collaborate um, in decision-making, you're not going to go very far with that patient, to be very honest. And it doesn't matter how well you trained or how well you did in all your testing and throughout your education, being able to gain a patient's trust is so important. And part of the way, a part of the way in which we can gain trust is to being open to what that patient brings to the table. You know, and I talked about that a little bit before and that we really have to take each patient as a whole person. And so part of that is listening, right? And understanding where they come, where they're coming from. And I think that's especially important whether you are socially congruent or incongruent with your patient, um, it's important to listen to them. Um, you know, and as a Black clinician, um, I fully understand that I might be able to relate with another Black patient um, in a different level compared to my white counterparts. But, you know, as Black people, we are not a homogeneous group. Um, I have different experiences that I come to the table with than my patient may, even if we are both of a similar race. And so I think ultimately, um, as clinicians, when we're caring for our patients, I think being aware of what they bring to the table and being open to collaborating with our patients is, is certainly key, especially as we face these issues with Black maternal mortality, understanding that what our patients, our, our Black pregnant patients bring to the table and how we approach them and how we address them and how we gain their trust is going to be key in helping to impact outcomes for them, ultimately for them and for their babies. Dr. Hay, thank you so much again for your time today. I think you were able to share with us a lot of different ways to approach the look of Black maternal health from a systemic standpoint, from an individual standpoint. Um, the discussion of bias I found uh, very riveting in, in that, you know, that becomes a, a way for us as we're listening to kind of self-check or self-inventory where we are in our journeys and how we look, reflect, and interact with other individuals. So thank you so much again for your time today. Brian, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this very important issue of Black maternal health. Um, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Khadijah. And thanks to you, our listeners. I hope you've learned from this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast as I have. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for others, please contact me, Rob Strauss, at beyondclinicalmedicine.org.